Brian, I have some bad news here. Yes. Uh, I have a system overload with my uh, recording. Oh, good. Starting at three minutes and 15 seconds. Here. Oh, you're good. So- <laughs> Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to the Bible Geeks Weekly Podcast. This is episode 80. I'm Brian Sheely. I'm Ryan Joy. And thanks so much, everyone, for tuning in. Okay, week 39 at the end of the book Bible reading program. We are now officially at the end of the third quarter. Going to roll into the fourth quarter here next week. But as we close up 1 Peter and start up 2 Peter, we've got a lot of stuff to talk about on this episode. It's pretty jam-packed. And where are we going here near the end of the episode? Well, there's an old Quaker saying that says, let your life preach. And there's actually a really cool book called Let Your Life Speak that comes from that. Not a Bible book, but interesting book by Parker Palmer. And I was just thinking about that quote and how it ties in with everything we're going to be talking about for the most part today. We're going to talk about people whose lives declare that they are atheists, whether they would say that about themselves or not. We're going to talk about how our life speaks about our fear and what our fears say about who we are and how we reverence the Lord. So what is your life saying might be a good question to kind of cap off the episode. (laughs) That is a good question. Something to think about. And as we always do on the episode, we're going to start this thing off by finding Jesus here in 1 Peter chapters 3 through 5 and 2 Peter chapters 1 and 2. So where is Jesus here? Jesus is the antidote to fear. That's a pretty good antidote. Yeah, yeah. So I looked in 1 Peter 3 verses 14 and 15 and Peter says basically rather than fear people and the things people commonly fear, We should shift our focus to Christ and exalt him in our hearts as the Lord of our lives. And man, we need this message now as much as ever. Mm -hmm. The West Coast is on fire. Oh, man, please don't. Oh, Oh, man, man. here we go. There's a new hurricane every day. There's this uh, viral plague on the land. You got to be Debbie Downer on this episode. Yeah, I mean, everybody seems scared to death about the guy that they're not supporting Mm -hmm. getting elected this fall. And uh, other than that, everything is (laughs) calm. Oh, we're all good other than that. And yeah, I mean, but um, Christians today need to hear Peter's reasoning for showing the world a peaceful, confident, hopeful way to live. And so here's what Peter says. He says, have no fear of them, or it could be translated, have no fear of what they fear, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. We like to focus on the end of that verse a lot, but the beginning we of it. We do. Yeah. And, and it's a great ending. But the beginning part is Peter quoting this wonderful passage from Isaiah 8 verses 12 to 13, where Isaiah is told not to get caught up in the furor of panic that the people are kind of getting stirred up into at that time about Assyria and the news of political and military danger. And he literally warns Isaiah not to get caught up in conspiracy theories and fearful speculation. He says, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. Wow. And do not fear what they fear nor be in dread, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear 
and let him be your dread and he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense. That's Isaiah 8, 12 to 14. How about that passage? Yeah, put that in vinyl on your wall. Oh, man. Yeah. (laughs) Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. Truly, that is a good thing to remember. And Peter knew that Christians in his time could get worked up in the midst of an unknown future. They were at that time trying to figure out how's society and government going to respond to Christianity. Mm -hmm. And so he goes back to another time of unease back there in Isaiah's time. And he says, replace your fear with honor for the Lord of hosts. That's what Isaiah said to do. The one who commands the armies, the Lord of hosts, much greater than Assyria or Rome or any other force, Yahweh of hosts is the great power. Only here, Peter does something, I mean, pretty amazing, really. He replaces Yahweh of hosts, the divine name, with Christ the Lord. Because Jesus is Yahweh of hosts. Jesus is the mighty commander of the angels of heaven. And if you stand with him and meditate on who he is, your fear will dissolve. If you really put your trust in him and honor Christ as Lord in your heart, not just with your words, but actually let him be the Lord over you in your heart, reverence him, hold him up as holy and sanctify him. And if he becomes that sanctuary for you in your heart and that that one that you hold up as the great and mighty Lord, then your fear, it'll be like water heating up in the fire of his presence and becoming steam is this image I have in the, my mind. It's like <laughs> the steam that just floats away. Your yeah. fear can slowly become less powerful, less palpable, less controlling the more you think about the Lord and hold him up. It's just amazing as I've sort of poured through 1 Peter over the last week or so, how relevant the message of Peter is to today. And this verse, I mean, you really could just pluck it right out and stick it in modern day society. And it means about the same as it did for them, I'm sure, back then. The surrounding circumstances are different. The persecution probably was much more physical, I guess you could say. But the rejection they were facing, their uncertainty and their fear, I mean, that's definitely something we're dealing with today. So I like this comparison. And if you're going to have to use anyone as a strong leader to carry you through battle, it might as well be the Lord of hosts, Christ the Lord. Lord of hosts. Yeah, Yeah, pretty powerful. So where did you find Jesus here? All right. So on a similar vein here in 1 Peter chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4, we find that Christ and his sufferings are what prepares us for battle. I guess this kind of ties into what you were talking about, but he says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And you drop down to chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. The encouragement here is to think like Jesus. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. And he's done this a number of times back in chapter 2, now here in chapter 3 and in chapter 4. While we're going through suffering, while these elect exiles of the dispersion were going through suffering, look back to Jesus. Think about Jesus and not just think about him, but think like him. 
That seems maybe like a purely mental exercise, but after it changes our minds, it really starts to change our actions. And what it leads us to do, as he says here, is to stop sinning. And so it's easy, I think, for us to try to deal with the external activities where we focus so much on this issue or that issue or this problem or this false teaching or whatever. But we forget sometimes, I forget sometimes to deal with the root of the problem, which is who am I thinking about? Whose mind am I using? Am I using my own or am I thinking like Jesus, the one who suffered, the one who suffered unjustly? And if I think like him, then my struggles with the passions of life are a lot easier to deal with, I think. Think like Christ. Arm yourself like it's a weapon Mm -hmm. with the same way of thinking as Jesus had. If we can always keep the same way of thinking as Jesus had, I dare say we won't have too many troubles making the right decision in the things that come at us. But that's the challenge is to always go back to what would Jesus think. And especially as we think about suffering and the pull of the flesh and overcoming that. That's a good thought. Yeah, and the more you think like Christ, the more it starts to disconnect the flesh and the spirit. Sometimes we feel like they're really tied together, like what happens to me physically really impacts my spiritual life. Maybe we get laid off, maybe our health goes south, maybe we lose a loved one or we face some kind of rejection. But if we think like Christ, none of those physical troubles can ever ruin our lives in the spirit. As much as Jesus was suffering there on the cross in the flesh, his life in the spirit was just growing and growing. He was made alive in the spirit, which is really cool language to think about. So the more we suffer, the stronger our desire really to leave this world becomes and all the passing pleasures of sin that we see around us. And you can go back to the last episode to talk about pleasures and loving this world. But if we shift our mindset to have one like Jesus, then I think it's an extremely encouraging message. Yeah, Paul uses similar language in 2 Corinthians 3 about our bodies falling apart, Mm -hmm. really, day by day. But inwardly, we're being renewed every day. It's like we're getting made alive, as this says, or refreshed and getting our battery charged up inwardly, even as things keep happening. And the book of 2 Corinthians is really another book that's a meditation on suffering. In that case, Paul's difficulties, all the things that he goes through, but he just never let it get him down for the same reason, Mm -hmm. certainly, that he keeps going back to Christ and keeps thinking about what Christ went through and how he is partnering with Christ in his difficulty and sharing in a little taste of what the Lord went through. Well, some good thoughts. Uh, Let's move on to our second segment here on the episode, which is scripture du jour. What is the soup du jour? It's the soup of the day. Mm, That sounds good. I'll have that. So we're in 2 Peter chapter 1 in today's reading on Thursday. And what do you find here in 2 Peter 1 that's helpful or useful for us today? Well, this really goes with what you were just talking about in a way, and that's that Christ's promises offer a way to escape. They really offer a way to partake in God's nature. Mm-hmm. And so he says in 2 Peter 1 verses 3 through 4, and Just stick with it because, man, there's a sermon in every little phrase here. (laughs) Peter does this a lot. He does. He's just stringing together pearls here. He says, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises 
so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. And I just focused on, you had to pick something. (laughs) There's so much there. So I just focused on this idea of how do we escape the corruption in the world? How do we escape our own sinful desires, as he says it? He says his precious and very great promises can make us partakers of the divine nature. And what is his nature like? Well, he says his glory and his excellence or his virtue, his moral excellence. Mm -hmm. We can become moral as he is and immortal as he is through these promises. And the realization of those promises someday will change us as we become in our bodies more like Jesus, as we become immortal in that time of eternal life. But even now, remembering those promises allows us to find strength and temptation and become more like Christ, more like God. And they're a vehicle of escape, like a like a getaway car <laughs> or an escape hatch. They're a way to get out of here whenever we feel trapped in our own desires, maybe, or in a pattern of the world around us. And sometimes it can be this constraining force that we might feel stuck If we remind ourselves of the promises, we can find strength. And that's really, in a way, that's the whole book of 2 Peter in a nutshell, I think, is these false teachers in chapter 2 are having this loose view of their own desires. Why? Because as we get to chapter 3, they don't have a clear picture of hope and of what's ahead and what the promises are that new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells, as he says in chapter three, that time when all of this stuff that they're so attracted to will dissolve. And so here he says, how do you overcome? How do you have the self-control to find that godliness, to escape these things? You look to the promises and we sing sometimes that song, standing on the promises, I cannot fail when the howling storms of doubt and fear assail. Stand on the promises. And sit in the exit row of Christ's promises. <laughs> yes. Be ready to run. Next time I have to sit in the exit row, I'm going to think about that. <laughs> it is, though. I mean, we talk about how God provides us with a way of escape out of temptation. And I think a lot of the times we think about that as like a real life scenario in which we would be able to, maybe like Joseph did, leave our robe behind and run away. But in a more substantial sense, just that focus on Christ's promises are an escape. If we can center our minds back on the right things, the lasting things like you talked about, then that's really what's going to carry us through, carry our faith through, carry our hope through, is knowing that no matter what happens to us, that's fine. So long as I have an eternal home prepared for me someday where I'm never going to have to worry about all of this stuff around me. Yeah. What did you find in 2 Peter 1 that was was interesting and helpful to you? Well, so he gives this list in 2 Peter 1 early on of these virtuous qualities, things we should be adding to our faith. Then he has a contrast with that about those who don't practice these things, don't have these virtues in their life. And as I read these verses in 2 Peter 1 verses 9 through 11, what becomes really clear is that willful blindness 
is visible. Mm. Follow along here in verse 9. He says, For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So I've got pretty good vision. I'm fairly close to 2020. I've never really needed to wear glasses, except sometimes I just need something to help staring at the computer all day. But Ryan, I have seen your <laughs> Coke bottle glasses, brother. Yeah, man, just rub it in. <laughs> <laughs> so I wonder how someone like you relates to this verse. But on the second part that he talks about, this forgetfulness that he describes them as having, I am definitely forgetful. I would forget my own name sometimes if it wasn't written on my underwear. But there, <laughs> there's literally a lot of things that just slip out of my mind and I, I don't remember them at all. So I get this picture that Peter's describing here. And mm -hmm. it's not about the fact that these people are born with nearsightedness or poor memory, but it's about those who willingly choose that condition spiritually. Because these are people who were once cleansed from their former sins. So they know better. They know what the right thing to do is. They know about faith and virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and godliness and brotherly affection and love. They know about all of those things. Mm -hmm. But they have now become so focused on the world and self-gratification, like we talked about on the last episode, rather than that hope of heaven. I think the thing that stands out at me here is that these are all visible practices. Everything mm -hmm. that he talks about in this previous list, they're all things that you can see on the outside, which is a problem if you're nearsighted and you're blind and you're forgetful. You can't see those things within yourself. And I think that's a problem that just permeates our society and probably some of our listeners. You are probably not able to evaluate yourself as clearly as you think you can. And I'm not able to evaluate myself as clearly as I think I can. And I think that's one of the great reasons why we need to be going to people who can see clearer than we can or who can see us on the outside and tell us whether we are these kinds of faithful, virtuous, knowledgeable, self-controlled, the list goes on loving kinds of people and have them really help us to understand ourselves better. Oh, yeah, that that reality check kind of a friend is really helpful. And it's it's hard to develop that kind of relationship where you can have graciousness and honesty and, and just allow for that and ask for that. And mm. but, man, it's worth investing in those relationships. And that's what we're here. That's what the family of God is here for. And one of the things that we need to be able to see is not just ourselves right now, but we need to be able to look backwards and forward. It, it's like on all horizons, they're blind to everything except what's right in front of them, their desires or w whatever is immediate. But they've forgotten. He's so nearsighted that he's forgotten he was cleansed from his former sins. He forgot that change that happened. You remember your former love? You remember that change that happened? Remember, you aren't that person anymore. You died to those things. And then also, of course, missing the thing that we just talked about, that hope that's ahead and those promises you don't see to that horizon. And then I like what you're saying here, that you're missing those visible things you should be able to see in your own life. You're not even seeing where 
your virtue, your knowledge, your self-control is lacking. And, and those are all things we're all susceptible to because we forget. Mm. It's so easy to forget to pay attention, to forget to remember, <laughs> to forget to remind yourself. <laughs> forget to remember. <laughs> you, you, when you forget to remember, you've definitely missed it. You know, you need a million uh, little strings around your finger to help you remember the most important things. So, yeah, I mean, the idea of being nearsighted is definitely something I can relate to. I mean, I can lift my glasses right now and just see a big blur here. And it's easy to, without even realizing it, I guess, grope through life, just kind of holding your hands out so you don't bump into walls and maybe not even realize what you're missing. Well, that is First Peter chapter one. Just a couple insights there. Let's move into our third segment here, which is poetry in motion. We are back to the Psalms with Psalm 14, but this Psalm, I think, is really applicable to some of the things that we've talked about. And so what is kind of the overall summary, I guess, of these short seven verses? Well, it really goes with, yeah, everything we've just said. It goes with this statement you just made about being nearsighted because he's going to talk about fools Mm -hmm. and he's going to talk about atheists. But there's two kinds of atheists, I guess you could say there's theoretical atheists. Yeah, I've thought this through and I've come to this conclusion that there is no God. And then there's a practical atheist who lives their life as if there is no God and there are no consequences. And that second one is really what he's talking about here as he fleshes out exactly what it means for this fool to say there is no God. And this is where it matters most in the arena of our lives. What are our decisions declaring about our beliefs? And so the psalm opens with that shocking statement pointing out this fool who stands alone on a very dangerous precipice. But then it's like this camera shot, you know, I'm imagining as the frame widens, the camera zooms out and we see all of humanity standing on that same ledge with him. And it gives us a view of humanity, at least as a mass, as a general view of humanity from the truly righteous moral judge's viewpoint. And so it breaks down into two halves. This psalm, Psalm 14, verses one to three are about the fool's character. And we find these four repeated phrases. There is not. And then he finishes it. And then the second half, verses four through seven, are about the fool's future. And so it looks ahead. So getting into verses one to two, what are these verses about? Yeah, I guess you could summarize these first two verses by just saying, God, who? Because that's kind of (laughs) what these fools are saying. In verses one and two, it says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. And if there was a key word in these first two verses of Psalm 14, it might be they. It's this pointing to these fools and who they are. And aren't they always the foolish one? If you boil it down and in your own mind, aren't those people always the foolish ones? It's never we. It's never we. It's always they. And they are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. But hold on a second. There is none who does good. And that hits closer to home. And that is kind of what happens here in this psalm is that that almost cinematic widening of the lens starts to open up to all humanity. It's not just laser focused on these fools who say there is no God, but it's also focused on every single person who's ever lived. 
There is none who does good. And I think that's Paul's point in Romans chapter 3, as he's gotten done talking to Gentiles and talking to Jews. And in chapter 3, he broadens the perspective to everybody. And he quotes this psalm, I think, to basically make the case that we're all in the same boat. It's a sinking boat. It's a, it is definitely a sinking boat, both Jews and Gentiles. Mm-hmm. God is looking down from heaven, and he doesn't see anyone who is perfect, including and especially me. So mm-hmm. I feel like we emphasize this point a lot on the show, but I, it bears repeating that we're no better than anyone else. That's exactly what Paul says in summary in Romans chapter 3, verse 9. Are the Jews any, any better off? Are the Gentiles any better off? And then he quotes this psalm. This is just a problem that we all have. It is hard to call myself a fool, but like you said, in that practical way or that living kind of way, if I don't live with the acknowledgement that God is actually watching me and judging me, then I am a fool. And I'm acting exactly like he's describing here. And he could very well be talking about me. Yeah, it's not that there's no distinction to be made between the righteous and the unrighteous, as we see at the end of this. And Paul begins in, in Romans 2, he gives a distinction. But it's it's like that's the second stage of the discussion. Mm-hmm. The first part is to establish that we are all in the same pickle. <laughs> we are all in that sinking boat from this standpoint of absolute righteousness. There is no distinction in that we all have to, without boasting, turn to the Lord seeking his mercy because uh, on the basis of the law, as Paul brings this up in, in Romans 3, we can't justify ourselves. So we are all in the same pickle and in the same boat, (laughs) but he's not done describing them or they here. So where does he go next in Psalm 14? Well, it it keeps getting worse, really. (laughs) He he basically says humanity is going bad like old milk. (laughs) So he says in verses three through four, they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge? All the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord. And so the key word, I think, is corrupt, or as the New English Bible says, rotten to the core. (laughs) This word comes from an Arabic word for making milk go sour. Mm -hmm. Pretty gross. You know, they're all going bad. Humanity is souring. It's, It's going rotten on the vine right before God's eyes. He says, not even one, just to emphasize the point. There's no one good. Not even one. But but what about me? Nope. <laughs> nope. 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 Not even one. You know, is it's like Abraham. What if there were ten righteous? Nope. Nope. Not enough. There's there's not even one. And this picture of humanity becoming evil altogether takes us back to the flood when the whole world became corrupt. I mean, there's some of this language really sounds kind of like that. Mm -hmm. But as Paul quotes it in Romans 3, we see all people sinning throughout time. It's not one nation. It's not one era, you know, back how bad they were in the flood times. At one point or another, all people turn away from God. And I have this image of lemmings running one after another off of the edge of a cliff. And we all just kind of, it's like the way that we have patterned in our brain to eventually go after our own way. And so along with your application about personal guilt, we should also begin asking for 
an answer outside ourselves. And that's where Paul brings this. So as we kind of connect this psalm to Paul's very long quote of this psalm in Romans 3, we should, I think, bring it to Paul's conclusion. He says in verse 20 of Romans 3, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. And he says in verse 27, what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. (laughs) No exceptions. This is absolutely excluded. There's no boasting allowed because on what basis would it be? We have all turned to our own way. But of course, there are some who turn back to the Lord and there can be a, a repentance and a choosing to trust in God and to walk with him. And so he starts talking about these two groups. What are the future of these two groups in verses five and six? Yeah, so he paints maybe a slightly better picture here. But of these ones who are fools who say there is no God, he says in verse five that they're afraid. Mm -hmm. He says, there they are in great terror. For God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. And I love the fact that he brings up the righteous here because he's starting to paint a more positive picture. As we've seen in a lot of mm-hmm. these psalms, he starts in one place and he ends in a much different place. And so he's yeah. he's starting to bring hope into this. But I, I keyed off of the word great terror here because I think it's easy for me especially to look around at the world and like, why do they do the things that they do? Why are they so evil? Why are they so hateful? And almost try to apply this malicious intent to them. Mm. But he's describing them here as greatly afraid. Yeah. For myself, there's a cornerstone moment in our marriage where I am not proud to admit it, but I have experienced this great sense of terror myself. One evening, my wife and I, on our anniversary retreat, we went out to a resort in the desert, and we were walking to a pool one night, and suddenly, out of nowhere, this, it was tiny, it looked like a giant one to me, but it was tiny, this snake (laughs) came sliding across the path, and just purely out of instinct, I jumped back, and in the process, and I'm ashamed to admit it, I pushed my wife, my loving wife, into the snake as I fled away from it. What? <laughs> and, you know, if the saying is true that animals are just afraid of you as you are of them, I mean, this snake must have been terrified because <laughs> I was terrified. And in thinking about this example and thinking about this verse is that so often we just are afraid and fear is what motivates us to do some of the things that we're doing. And as you talked about in the beginning of the episode, Jesus is the antidote to fear. And without Jesus, doesn't it make sense that the world is in great terror? Doesn't it make sense that the world is just greatly afraid of the future, doesn't know what the future holds, and are just in fear because God is with the generation of the righteous? And like an animal who would be acting out of fear, like I would be acting out of fear, that's often what the world is doing. They're acting out of fear, Mm -hmm. and that's the reason. I think so many times that they respond to us the way that they do, and it is an emotion that I can totally sympathize with. Without God, there's a lot of reasons to be afraid, and it's no wonder why they will act irrationally. The other day I was talking to my kids about something kind of like this, and I brought up something that I thought they could relate to, which was a quote from the movie Frozen, where they say in, in that song, 
people make bad choices when they're mad or sad or stressed, but throw a little love their way and love brings out their best. But it's so true that whenever we're afraid, whenever we're stressed out, whenever we're in this place of playing defense and feeling like we have to look out for ourselves or everything is going to fall apart. There's a sense of terror that leads to like that cornered animal mentality. And you can definitely see that all around us. And, and this kind of helps, I think, fully flesh out that picture of what we were talking about earlier from first Peter three, why someone would look at us and think, what is the reason for the hope that's within you? Why are why aren't you freaked out like the rest yeah, of us? Yeah. And hopefully we're not because our God is the Lord of hosts and we can trust in him no matter what happens around. Though the earth shakes beneath our feet, we can trust in you. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a really helpful idea is to recognize this distinction and that great terror is driving the lives of those who are holding in their hearts this idea that there is no God. Mm -hmm. So as he paints this kind of bleak picture of humanity, at least for those who aren't righteous and don't know who God is, where does he go to close this thing out? Hopefully a better place. Yeah, it is. As often in these Psalms, it is a prayer for restoration. He says, oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. And this word restores is about something broken or removed, being made right again. And from Zion, from God's dwelling place where the temple is, deliverance will always come. And God is the mountain from whence our help will come. And Christians look forward to a day of complete restoration that Paul talks about a little bit later in the book of Romans. Romans 8 verses 19 to 25 talks about creation groaning for this time and our bodies groaning for this time of redemption when everything is going to be made new and made right. And we know that God will restore the fortunes of his people. And so we should, we should rejoice. We should find our hope in him and our strength in him and our inheritance that awaits us someday will be worth whatever we go through to get to it. This idea of restoration, I think, is really cool. And mm. it immediately made me think of Kintsugi. I don't know if you've ever seen the Japanese oh, form yeah. of like repairing broken pottery. And it, it's actually yes. called golden joinery is the literal translation of that word. And it's where they take a bunch of broken pieces of some pot or some dish and they put it all back together. They make it whole again, but it, it's beautiful. Mm -hmm. And in the way that they put it back together, it's this kind of, it's almost better than when it started. I mean, it's not complete. You can tell that it was broken, yeah. but there's care and there's love that goes into putting this back together. And that's what God does for us. He takes what was broken, what was in this bleak picture that he's painted here in this psalm. He takes those who formerly didn't know God and puts them back together in a way that is beautiful in a way that's careful and shows his love. And we can stand proud knowing that we've been put back together. We've been restored to something that's whole again. 
I love that illustration. That is really good. There's a hymn that talks about the God who uses broken things, who through broken clouds gives us sweet rain, who Mm -hmm. gives us bread from broken grain, and how God just constantly makes us stronger through broken things. And that idea of us being pieced together ourselves, our souls, our lives being pieced together with that golden cement like that Japanese pottery and the world being pieced together and all things being restored to something much better than it ever could have been because God has taken something broken and made it whole again. That's great. Yeah. All right. So that's Psalm 14. And you know what happens when we get to Psalm 15? We will be one tenth of the way through the Psalms. Can you believe that? (laughs) Wow. Hey. I'm looking on the bright side here. That actually is encouraging. (laughs) It'll probably take us a while to get through. By my calculations, it might be 10 years before we ever finally finish this thing. Yeah, yeah. Coming to you, 2030, (laughs) Poetry in Motion, Psalm 150. Oh, man, mark it down. So let's get into the challenge for this week. And maybe a good challenge based on some of the things we've been talking about is for us to sing a song, maybe like the one that you were just talking about. Sing a song about God's promises. Yeah. There's something about singing, there's something about calling out to the Lord in song that really helps put this kind of in a solid place in our minds and helps us to think about God's promises. And maybe that would be a good thing for us all to do this week. All right. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in to the Bible Geeks podcast. You can find us on our website at BibleGeeks.fm. You can find show notes for this episode at BibleGeeks.fm slash 80. And if you have any questions for us, if you want to get in touch with us, go to BibleGeeks.fm slash contact. And until next week, everyone, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Shalom. May I say something? Um... Me and my daughter met the doctor. Oh, yeah? Okay. No, no. It's bye time bye. to go. I got to bye report. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Can you call, lock the door, please?